Good morning. It's so good to see you this morning. Uh, who are my teachers here this morning? Do we have any teachers here this morning? Happy summer. Uh, as many of you know, my uh, parents were educators. Uh, my mom taught for many, many years in a public school classroom. She still does some teaching online with some entry-level college English classes. And my mom was and is a wonderful teacher. I'm not just saying that because she was my mom. I, I had her in fourth grade, and it was like the best year I ever had. And my mother ascribes to the philosophy that there is no such thing as a bad question. There's no such thing as a bad question. That's probably not true. Um, I've taught also, uh, but in her class, I think it was. Because that's the great thing about a great teacher, right? That they can take a bad question and turn it into a wonderful teaching opportunity. Jesus did that all the time, didn't he? People would come to him with questions, and they were asking the wrong questions in the wrong ways, with the wrong motives, and Jesus could turn that. He could change that, and instead of answering the question that they ask, he could answer the question that they ought to ask, seeing in their hearts and knowing exactly what they needed. But it's not just Jesus while he was on earth that did this. We see this throughout the Bible. The Holy Spirit has preserved questions that people ask at different points, and those questions should cause our ears to perk up, because so often it is the questions that we find in the biblical text, and the answers to those questions, we find that those are the places where we can make the most powerful application to our own lives. And I would suggest that the text that we're going to study this morning is just that kind of text. If you have your Bible with you, would you open it up, please, and turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, and we're going to look um, in the first 14 verses or so of this text. This is perhaps a story that you're familiar with, the account of Naaman. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the account of Naaman is an account of obvious answers to obtuse questions. And we'll begin reading in 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1, if you'll turn over there. Before we do, thank you for being here. So grateful for the presence of all, especially those who are visiting with us. And uh, if you are visiting, um, maybe you don't know all the procedures and so forth, we have some handouts for the lesson this morning. If you'd like one of those, uh, raise your hand and we'll get one of those handouts to you. I say obtuse. That's a word my mother would never use to describe somebody's question. I say obtuse questions because with most of the questions that are asked in this text, they are dangerously slow in dawning on the understanding of what it is they ought to know. There are six questions that are asked in the first 14 verses of this chapter, four of which are basically rhetorical in nature. But all six of these questions are asked, and the answer to that question ought to be obvious. And the lesson that we should learn from it, just as obvious as well. So let's consider these six questions as we begin reading in 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive, a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. 
Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, the king, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes. And he said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends me a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. The king of Israel has hit upon a truth here, and he didn't even realize it. The first of our six questions with obvious answers is this. The king asks, am I God to kill and make alive? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. With each of these questions, many of which are yes or no, I just want you to answer this question in your own mind and own heart. But also I want you, if you can and if you're willing, uh, to rattle your head this way or that way. The king asks, am I God to kill and make alive? And the answer is, no, of course not. You're not God. But the king has unintentionally stumbled upon this reality that only God has the power and authority to save. Only God has the power and authority to save. And if anyone had the power to save himself, it was Naaman. Naaman was a great and powerful man, an important man. He had the year of the king. He had wealth. He had achieved great success in his life. You know what Naaman was? Naaman was a winner. He was victorious. And notice the words to describe him in the text, especially in verses 1 and 2. He was a commander. He was great. He was honorable. He was victorious. He was a mighty man of valor. But there was one big but in all of that. He had a problem that he could not solve because he was a leper. Leprosy. A death sentence. And all the money and all the power and all the success and horses and chariots and servants didn't change the fact that he had an incurable, painful, debilitating, and ultimately terminal disease. He was rotting away and he couldn't stop it. Leprosy is a powerful physical picture of the spiritual reality of sin. Leprosy is grotesque and marring. But these pictures that I show you on the screen behind me, these really mask the bigger problem with leprosy. The worst thing about leprosy is that you, you lose your feeling. Leprosy is a disease of the nerves. And so what happens is you can't feel and you start to harm yourself. Uh, I read a book on leprosy a number of years ago, and it gave a number of examples for this. There was a man who ended up losing losing several toes because he would stuff his feet into shoes and he couldn't feel what was going on in there. And over the course of the day, he was a salesman on his feet. He would take his shoes off and they'd be bloody underneath and he had no idea. 
There was a man who lost his thumb because there was a, a, a faucet that was just rusted down and he turned and he turned and he turned so hard he sheared his thumb off because there was no feeling. And it would ultimately have boils and, and disappearance. You could hide it for a while. That's the way leprosy was. But slowly the body starts to destroy itself. And the hidden pain and sickness soon becomes evident. And you experience social suffering and outcast from society. And from ancient times until now, lepers have been this kind of outcast. And no human power could overcome this. God, uh, only God has the power and authority to save in this way. And so too when we think about sin, we lose feeling in our sin. Our hearts become hardened, our consciences seared with a hot iron, calloused and unfeeling. And we harm ourselves and others in ways that we don't fully realize until the damage is done. We destroy ourselves with our own actions. We try to hide our sin, but our sin finds us out. And others eventually see us for who we really are. And then there is the social aspect of this sin, this disease that we have, that it alienates us from God and others. And no human power can overcome it. That's where Naaman found himself, and so he turns to a non-human power for help. Notice in verse 8, So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Why have you torn your clothes? Elisha, the prophet, asked the king. And what is the answer to that question? Why did he tear his clothes? It was because of a lack of faith. And the lesson that we should take from this is this. God provides solutions if we turn to Him for answers. Sometimes what we need to do is stop tearing our clothes. Stop acting like there is no solution to the problem when God is there and God can provide that solution. I love, as we think about faith and the lack of faith of the king of Israel, I love contrasting that king with this little girl. We think about her and her faith. There is such a contrast. What an impact one little girl who does what is good toward another can have. By her word, if only he was in Samaria, the prophet could heal him. By her word, kings acted. Three million dollars in modern money worth of silver and gold was taken by Naaman. Young people, don't underestimate the influence you can have by speaking up for what is good. And this girl, she is so gracious in even being willing to suggest this to her master. The fact that she would care for Naaman shows that there is something greater in her than all of the greatness we see in Naaman. Because she had two very powerful things in her heart. She had love and faith. Love and faith. She had love and concern from Naaman in suggesting that he needed to be healed. Her enemy, her oppressor, the one who caused her so much suffering, 
we see that this young girl was taken by the Syrians. And it doesn't specifically say that she was taken from Israel. Perhaps she had been taken by somebody else and the Syrians saved her from, from that fate. But that's unlikely. What likely happened was Syrian bands came into Israel and there is no mention of this little girl's parents in this text. She was probably taken as at a young age like Daniel and Ezekiel and others who were taken into Babylonia. She's taken into Syria to serve as a slave the rest of her days. And rather than being embittered by that, she suggests a way to save her master. And it was her faith that the prophet could save this master that led to his salvation. Unlike the king of Israel, she knew that God could do this. And so she shared the source of the solution with him. She says simply, go to the prophet. What if we just did that? What if we just went to the source of the solution What if we just go to the prophets? What if we just turn to God's Word? If only you would go, then you could be healed. And if only I would go, then I would be healed. I was having a a study with someone a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about a number of things related to religion. And he said that someone told him a a long time ago, and this little three-word phrase has stuck with him through the years. He said, I was told to be a Berean. And this is somebody who has who is bounced around to a number of different churches and, and viewpoints on Christianity and those sorts of things. But he said, I was told at an early age, be a Berean. Referencing to Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, those Jews who were more fair-minded because they received the Word in all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether those things spoken by Paul were so. Well, what if that was all of us? What if we all had that attitude of going to the source of the solution to our problems? Going to God in prayer, asking for those things, sure. But also going to His Word to see what it is that He says we ought to do. That's the reaction of faith. If we turn to God for answers in faith, He will provide those answers. As Romans 10 and 17 says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Well, let's keep reading, and let's see where our next question comes up. Keep reading in verse 9, if you would. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious. And went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? That's our next question. And it's a good one. Are not the rivers that we see there in Syria, in Damascus, are they not better than all the rivers in Israel? Again, answer the question this way or that way. Are those rivers better? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The Farpar specifically, as we think about that river, it's a well-known river throughout history, uh, and it's a beautiful river. Um, We see that it starts out in the wilderness, and it actually flows down through the heart of, of Damascus. Uh, Let's see if these pictures will turn. Um, It's scenic. Uh, It's not San Antonio, but we have kind of a river walk around it as well. 
we keep going here. Maybe. Ah, there it is. And so we see that it runs right through the heart of Damascus. This is a modern picture even till today, right? Um, this river is so well known that we have paintings from it that go back several hundred years. You see that this is Damascus and this is a, what it looked like in earlier times. Uh, today it is the uh, Barada is what this river is called. And it even has its own Facebook page. Uh, and people go and they take pictures on the different bridges, um, and it has, you know, 3,500 followers or whatever. That's how good the river is. It has its own Facebook page. And this, this is the Jordan. Uh, in West Texas, we would call this a muddy old stream, right? Uh, this is the Israeli side. That's the Jordanian side over there. And you see it's not very far across at all. Uh, my dad and I got the chance to see this uh, river in person. There's all these reeds and, and underbrush and so forth as the river goes down and snakes to the Dead Sea. The day we were there, it was 109 degrees. Literally, that's not an exaggeration. On the car, it said 109 degrees. It was like a blast furnace. And so we come down to this river, and what do you find? You have people dipping or being baptized in the river. And my dad and I thought it was funny because they had these baptismal garments that were all white. And from a physical standpoint, it was almost like a reverse baptism because they went into the water clean and they came out of the water dirty. I don't know if you can really see that, but when they came out, these white garments just became brown. The Jordan River is nasty. And when he asked the question, are there not better rivers in Syria, the answer was yes. But what does that tell us? What lesson should we take from that? That the power is not in the water. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's part of what bothers so many about baptism, specifically. Getting dipped in water is supposed to wash away my sins? I mean, how does that work? Surely it must be symbolic of what has already happened, we reason to ourselves. And yet this, baptism, is what God chose to wash away and save us from our sins. And that's not me saying that. Be a Berean. What, what does the Bible claim? What does the Word of God claim about that? Turn to just one passage, 1 Peter chapter 3. And I choose this passage not just because of its clarity, but also because of the explanation that Peter gives. So 1 Peter chapter 3, um, and let's begin reading in verse 20. 1 Peter 3 and verse 20. Jesus suffered once for sins, just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We read back there in verse 18. And in verse 20, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So he's using Noah, that account from the book of Genesis, as an example for baptism. Verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us baptism. And then to make sure that we don't misunderstand what he's saying. Baptism uh, is just the idea of immersion, being dipped in water. And so he wants to make clear that this isn't about just the water. He has a parenthetical thought. In the New King James Version, it's actually in parentheses. It says baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. When we're talking about baptism, the power is not in the water. 
The power is not getting dipped and then, okay, this water is going to wash away my sins. The power, instead, as he says after the thought, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The baptism that now saves us is not the removal of the filth of the flesh. It's not taking a physical bath, but it's the answer of a good conscience toward God on our part through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the power of Jesus and what He has done, I can be saved through the waters of baptism. Peter wants to make this clear. The power is not in the water itself. The power is in God. The power is in the blood of Christ. The power is in the answer of a good conscience. But when those things take place, that salvation takes place when I'm baptized in water. The power was in God all along, just like it was with Naaman. But God still required Naaman to do what he commanded to receive his power promise of salvation. Without dipping in the Jordan, he wouldn't be saved. Without baptism, will we be saved? That's really the next question, isn't it? Could I not wash in them and be clean? These waters are better. The waters in Damascus. Could I not wash in those waters and be clean? Again, answer the question. Could Naaman have washed in those waters in Syria, dipped seven times and been clean? He couldn't have. I mean, if God chose to do that, He could have. But that's not what God chose. And what we learn from that is, As the giver of the gift, God has the right to set the conditions of acceptance. There was a disconnect in the text between the expectations of what Naaman thought should be done versus what God says should be done. And we can all fall into that trap. Were the the instructions difficult to understand that, that, that Elisha gave to Naaman? Did they require a great deal from him? Were they burdensome in any way? And yet they made him angry, and he wasn't going to do it. Why? Because it was foolishness in his eyes to dip in the Jordan River. It was not his expectation of what he thought was going to be done. Not what he wanted to do or expected to do. It didn't make sense to him. But it's very important for us to remember That if God says clearly for us to do something, it doesn't have to make sense to us. And sometimes it won't make sense to us for weeks or months or years. Maybe never until we go and see Him in glory. But if God tells us to do something, that is what we must do. This was the only way that God was going to save him. This was God's way. Now let me ask you, did dipping seven times save him? Think about it. It was God who saved him. God was the source of salvation. But the conditions that God chose for him to have access to that salvation was dipping in the Jordan seven times. Would another river have worked? Would dipping six times have worked? Of course not. Because God gives the gift of salvation. And that means that He sets the conditions as well. And amazingly, Anger and pride almost prevented Naaman from doing the very thing that could have saved him. I thought, he said, I thought the prophet would come out and do this. Why didn't God do it the way I had in mind? And most people, even many Christians, 
we want to ask why. Why, why, why? Why didn't the prophet come out and do it this other way? Why do we have to do this or that that God commands? Why can't we do this or that that God condemns? But the question that we should be asking is not why. The question that we should be asking is what? What does the Lord require of me? What do the Scriptures say? In everything, what does the Lord want me to do? What pleases Him? And what does the Lord want you to do this morning? We remember as we turn back to our text in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 5, after his anger, and he turns away in a rage, verse 12, verse 13, and his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Would you have not done something great? Maybe it's difficult for us to put ourselves in the shoes of Naaman, but if you've had a a terrible debilitating disease or someone in your family has, it's not that difficult. I remember when I was 10 years old and uh, hugging my grandfather because he was going to be away for three months because he had stage 4 terminal cancer. And traditional medicine had done all, the doctors said they had done all that they could do for him. And so he was taking a trip to Mexico. Maybe a little bit like going from Syria to Israel. That's probably a pretty good comparison. To see if perhaps there were some alternative treatments at a treatment center there, some holistic medicine that maybe would be helpful in some way. I remember at that time thinking with my, you know, underdeveloped 10-year-old brain, I remember thinking that that I would do anything, anything, to make my grandfather well. Wouldn't you do anything within your power to, to save a loved one? And this servant hits upon just the right tone, doesn't he? He comes to Naaman, he calls him his father. Naaman must have been a pretty good guy for all of these servants to love him the way that they did. And he asks, if the prophet had asked you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? The answer, of course, to this question is yes. Yes, he would have done it. And it wasn't something great that he was asked to do. He was just asked to dip in the river seven times. I I love this point because it comes up so often, so often in Scripture. What God does is He uses things that are simple, things that are easy, things, if I might be so bold, things that are absurd to emphasize that we're not doing it ourselves. But God is the one who is doing it. God uses the absurdity of the command to emphasize who is doing something great. And it's not us. It is God who is doing something great. And so many of the Old Testament accounts that we remember from our childhood illustrate this so perfectly. Marching around the city of Jericho for six days, once a day, and seven times on the seventh day, and shout with a great shout and the walls fall down flat. That's absurd, isn't it? It is not some great thing. It is easy to march. It is easy to yell. And yet that's what God required. To show that He was the one who was doing something great. Not them. We think about in the book of Judges. Gideon choosing 300 men to fight because God says, I want you to watch the way they drink water. 
And that's how you're going to choose the men to fight for me. And we're not going to use swords and so forth. Instead, we're going to use clay pots and torches. And with those, you will win the victory. That's absurd. Because God is showing that He gave them the victory, not their own might. And as we read a few moments ago in 1 Peter, the, oldest, uh, the earliest Old Testament example might be of a man named Noah who built a massive boat without modern tools that could hold two of every kind of animal and withstand a, a turbulent, stormy, worldwide flood. Possibly in a time where it had never rained before. It's absurd. And yet God was showing that He was the one doing the saving. Don't misunderstand me. God usually has good reasons for the things that He chooses to have us do. They are not arbitrary. But on the surface, we can't help but admit their absurdity. Why did He do it that way, we ask? I would have done it some way differently. But maybe what He's doing is He's showing us who is doing the saving. And if it were up to us, if we had to be saved, well, we would probably choose something much different. You've probably, if you're a parent, you've probably learned this little technique when you ask your kid, well, what do you think the consequences ought to be? You know, what do you think your punishment ought to be? And a lot of times, you know, it's like 30 years hard labor. You know, they pick something that is way out there, way more difficult, way greater than any punishment you would ever put upon them. And maybe sometimes that's the way it is with us. If we chose to save ourselves, we would pick something far different. But God picked something simple. God picked something, dare I say, easy, because He's done the hard part. Baptism, getting dipped in water, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's the hard part, and that's what God does for us. If we're willing to simply accept what it is He would have us to do. Uh, again, we see this in relation to baptism. If you go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. Buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, not in yourselves, through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. It is faith in the working of God. And however God says for me to do it, I have faith to do it that way. And that's our sixth question, isn't it? How much more then when He says to you, wash and be clean? Answer the question. The answer is, okay, I get it, I see. I just need to do what He says. Because that's what God is looking for. God is looking for humble obedience by faith to give His grace. God wants to give His grace. He wants to heal. But it requires humble obedience on our part in faith. And that's what Naaman had. Remember Jesus when He was rejected in Nazareth in Luke's Gospel. He says that there were many lepers in Israel, but none were saved except Naaman, who was from Syria a commander of the Syrian army who had done raids in Israel. But here was a man of faith who was willing in humble obedience to do what God required of him. 
And throughout history, God has put water between people and their salvation. Noah and the flood, as we said a moment ago. The Israelites had to cross the Red Sea to be saved from Egypt. They had to cross the Jordan in order to receive the promised land. The blind man healed by Jesus had to wash in the pool of Siloam. And Naaman had to humble himself and dip in the Jordan River seven times to cleanse his leprosy. You know, it's interesting. Anybody in here reading from the English Standard Version this morning? We have English Standard Version. Do you notice that the last couple of questions are just a little bit different there? The servant actually says to him in the ESV, that translation, and, and the Hebrew, as I understand it, can go either way. They just chose to translate it this different way. The servant says, it is actually a great thing that he has said to go and dip seven times. It's actually a great thing. Like, why are you upset about this? Why are you arguing? Like, this is a great thing that is being offered. So why don't you just wash and be clean? And it is a great thing that is being offered to you this morning as well. The waters of baptism stand between you and your salvation. Not baptism because you've already been saved. Not baptism as an outward sign of something that has already happened. Not baptism into a church. Those are all like the rivers in Syria. Can you wash in them and be clean? The baptism commanded by God for salvation is baptism into Christ for the remission of your sins. It is faith in the working of God. It's motivated by that faith that God can work. And that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead physically can raise you from the dead Spiritually. Do you have that faith? Motivated by that faith, be willing to repent, confess Jesus as Lord and Christ, and be baptized into Christ. And if you know you need to do that this morning, if you know you need to be saved, well really there's just a, a final question that's, that's left. Why are you waiting? That was the question Ananias asked Saul, who would become Paul, right? Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's you this morning. Come now, while together we stand and while we sing. Without